Welcome to Can You Hold My Attention? I'm your host, Eric Bruton. Thank you for tuning into my podcast today. On this show, I invite some of the most important and exciting leaders in wealth management and fintech to discuss and debate the latest trends and hottest topics facing financial advisors today. So why should you listen to this show? Well, my goal is for you to learn one or two ideas that will help you run a better business and or become a stronger leader. These shows have been a blast to do, mostly because of the great guests and the interesting conversations we've had. You can follow Can You Hold My Attention on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher. My friend Tim Bello doesn't care much for boxes, as in being put into a box. Tim and Merchant Investment Partners have consistently been put into this private equity box. And Tim would be the first and probably the second and third person to tell you that Merchant is not a private equity firm, but rather an operating company. It's stacked with resources. It's focused on people first and the deal second. Give Tim a square piece of cardboard and he will actually throw in Merchant's permanent capital focus, their super talented and very seasoned operating team, and their desire to be active partners to the RIAs and wealth management firms in which they take minority stakes. The formula is a winning one with Merchant investing in over 30 RIAs and wealth management firms in the last two years. And this is why I'm really happy to have Tim on this 21st episode of Can You Hold My Attention? Tim, how are you doing today? Always good, buddy, especially when I'm looking at you. How are you doing? <laughs> Great. Good. Uh, you know, Merchants had an unbelievably busy year. In fact, you've had a year's worth of deals in about three months, by my estimation. <laughs> it started off the year with Private Advisor Group, a $30 billion firm. I saw Fusion Family Wealth, River Wealth Advisors, Asperian. I mean, the list goes on and on. And this doesn't count some of your partner firms who are also acquiring um, new assets and new RIAs and and hybrids out there. So uh, yet you look like you just ran a marathon. So what what you know not not because you're tired because you're fit. Just to be clear. Thanks. So uh, so how are you doing it? Hard work, buddy. Same thing you've done your whole career. And by the way, I just want to say uh, at the outset of this, uh, I've known you for a long time. Um, this podcast is great. I'm not just saying that because I'm on it. And I really hope that uh, we're both able to hold each other's attention. But look, uh, in reality, how, how do we do it? That's a really good question. Um, some days it feels like controlled chaos and other days it feels like it's meant to be. Um, it's a push and a pull, man. You know, uh, at the end of the day, you, you got to hurry slowly. You got to make sure you don't do too much all at once. And whatever gets done has to get done right. And perfect is the enemy of good. But I will tell you this, and in fairness to what the market has seen us do recently, that's a culmination of work over the past 12 to 18 months. And when you're in the business of people and not just investing, you got to take your time to get to know the people that are alongside or behind these businesses. So, yeah, we've had a flurry of announcements. Um, and in all fairness, again, it all didn't happen at once. It happened over the course of the prior year. And some of that, although did happen uh, this year, but it's been just a, a lot of hard work. Um, yeah, I mean... I, I kind of knew that answer already. And I also knew because I've known you for a long time that just in spite of the glut of all these opportunities hitting all at once, it, it wasn't like you started talking to these firms in December and November of last year. 
you've been developing relationships and that's what I know you as, as a relationship builder in the industry. You've done well in that. No, thank you. And back at you. I mean, that's what we get along, but all kidding aside here, uh, you know, the, the, the market, uh, it's easy to understand from afar and it's hard to understand up close because once you get under the hood or you lift the, lift the hood of these businesses, it's kind of wild, right? Everybody thinks that because it's an RIA or wealth management business or a financial services company in the independent wealth space, people think that all these companies are created equal. And, and again, from 30,000 feet, they, they all have assets, they all have clients, they all have revenue, OPEX, and a bottom line in most cases. Um, but they're all so different. And uh, the reason why it's important for the people listening to think about that is there's this art and science in these partnerships. And, and I don't even think that people should consider them dependent upon how much percentage is being changed hands. These aren't always deals, they're partnerships. And those are really, I think, strong words, especially from the emergency, because the word partnership is paramount to what we do. It's essential. It helps ensure that my partners and I are always exercising quality control, no matter what the financial outcome and no matter how rewarding it may be. We always focus on the basics and the first principles. And I'll just say this, it's been a rewarding six years I hope the next six are as rewarding as the past six. And uh, this market is fast. It is moving. There are more capital entrants coming. It feels like every day, if not two a day. And in fairness, uh, I think that's all good for the market. I don't think Merchant looks at that as anything but good for financial advisors and the clients that those advisors serve. Yeah, well, you mentioned there's, these aren't deals, they're partnerships. But you know, in fairness to you and Merchant, you guys, I think that's a bit of an approach question, though, because in your from your approach, they are partnerships. But yeah. I've seen plenty of deals too in this industry, and they usually around, you know, revolve around a dollar amount or a number, and less to do with synergies in an organization, culture, anything like that. And so it it has a lot to do with approach, and and I can tell by talking to some of your current partners that they appreciate your approach. So I want to come back to that. And I also want to talk, you know, about some of the things you're seeing in the industry right now, specifically around M&A. But, you know, let's talk about you for a second. You're, you're a bit of an enigma in this industry. Uh, not a lot of people, and, and it, not just you, but also I would say your partners yeah. at Merchant. Uh, people know the name Merchant. They, know, they don't know as much about the people behind the scenes. And, uh, and I think, I think, you know, I might be speaking for it, but I think you like it that way. Uh, but, you know, tell, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into this business. Yeah, look, I mean, um, a lot of times people like to uh, talk about who they are and not as much about what they've done or what they're going to do. Uh, we're a company that likes to let the, uh, let the action do the talking, except in the events that you have the quality control might, what, what might be a, um, you know, an errant message or, or something that's not accurate in the market. Uh, with that said, I do think it is time, Derek, for Merchant to get a little bit more frontal um, as it relates to not only what we do, what our company represents, what we don't represent, but as you said, who we are. And who we are, by the way, in the boardroom and beyond the boardroom. Uh, you know me, you know me personally. Uh, I'm a really casual guy. I'm a family guy. I care about those things. Uh, those are always the first things when I get up in the morning. And I can say the same thing for my partners. Uh, our business is one where, you know, we really care about each other. Um, we're an operating company. We're a private partnership. Our wives are friends. Our kids are friends. Um, we've worked with for, and I've said this many times over the last five years to, to my partners, we've all worked, worked with for and against each other in different parts of our careers. And now here we are on one team. We're in the same Jersey, sharing the same risk and trying to create the same upside. And it's, it's really been incredible 
However, while some folks, uh, you know, and there's no such thing as being humble to a fault, being humble is good. I will say that the, the resumes of the people that uh, we were lucky to have kind of get around a round table here at Merchant, uh, it's a really unique group, not only generationally, but skill set wise. When you marry all the pedigrees and the cultures that we bring to the, the table here at Merchant, I think the, the team is, and, I, and I'm obviously, you know, unobjective here, but I think the team is second to none. I agree. You've got, you got a hell of a team there and you guys, and, 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 and as you said, it's all about the results and you're starting to see those just in the first quarter of this year. And, and I know you've got a lot of other stuff in the pipeline. Yeah. You know, speaking of pipeline and this, this market that we're in and what's fueling your pipeline. I mean, what are you, what are you seeing out there today? I mean, the, the, you know, we've got a war in Europe, we've got rising inflation I think gas is six dollars and eighty cents a gallon right now in California. That's for regular. That's for regular. That's, that's for regular, which we're all pumping these days. Forget <laughs> premium. I don't care what kind of car you have. Amen. Yeah, you know, we got rising interest rates, a stock market with a ton of volatility. How do you see the M and A market for the wealth management space and other areas that you're involved in? How do you see that kind of uh, playing out over the next eight months, nine months? Given what you just recited as a whole bunch of road bumps this company, this country has gone through in the world. Is that what you're, you're mentioning here? Is yeah, basically, you? yes. <laughs> look, look uh, my, my response to that is, and unfortunately, where we are right now is nothing new, especially not if you look back over the last 24 months or whenever the heck COVID began. I remember the day we shut our office down. Right. The, who am I politically? I'm nobody. But I will tell you this, this world, my God, it's been through a lot in the last two to three years, but it's a durable world. People, people fortunately forget things that are pretty nasty quickly. And I think if you look back over the course of time, let's just go back to 2000 for a second, 2002, pick every other period subsequent to then where volatility has gone through the roof, people have lost their jobs. We've seen deep, deep drops in the market. We've seen people uh, go through economy, uh, economies where, where unemployment has gone through the roof. I mean, you've got real personal issues going on in the world. Forget finance for a second. But the reality is... Um, it's unbelievable this part of the market, meaning in financial services, Derek, with wealth management, how durable this, this industry is. Okay, I mean, we're not in the restaurant business. We're not in the, uh, the health club business. We're, we're not in the movie theater business. We're in the wealth management business. And that's an essential service, my friend. We all would agree, no matter how much money you have, we all have the same things in terms of needs and advice and psychological help and market help and understanding of what the heck's going on. And so it's a long way of me saying that, unfortunately, we've been as a country and, a, and a, through a lot. And I don't think, um, and because of that, I don't know, and don't, I don't think that this recent action in the market or this horrible war, I don't think it's going to deter the wealth management industry from continually moving forward which is really moving forward on a path to more and more uh, M&A, more and more capital, more and more growth, uh, and frankly, more and more good things for, uh, for the wealth management space. I mean, it's been beyond resilient, right? It's, oh. it's actually been all these things, while you can look at their individual rep repercussions and individual impacts on the world and on, on people and economies and cultures and all that, but at the end of the day, when you look at our business, it not only has been resilient to all these things, but it's actually endured and matured and grown in spite of those things. And, and I keep coming back to him. You know, I want your thoughts on this, but I keep coming back is that at the end of the day, people have wealth and, and due to the bull market up until, you know, whatever, a couple months ago, that yep. wealth expanded dramatically and they need help. And we're in the business. We work with people that provide valuable help 
and investment advice. And that need will continue to increase uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the future. Would you agree? I mean, it's, it's not even up for discussion. It's an essential component of this of this part of the market, right? You got that's also a bigger discussion as as it relates to what are advisors doing today in terms of just simply adding value and how is value categorized or assessed through the eyes of the customer, the eyes of the family. You know, what are these firms really doing for the the families that rely on them? Um, and there's a lot that that goes into this, but yeah, look, the durability, as you said, the resilience of this part of the market is unbelievable. I think for many of us, we should admit that we're shocked slash surprised. I, I, I am. I mean, at the way things went, I remember sitting at my desk, March 2020, like I'm sure everybody does, shaking your head and going, what are we going to do? And all I could think of was, well, this is really going to be a test to the, the nature of these companies as it relates to the fact that they are yield and growth stocks, by the way. So if we just pivot for a second to the durability of these firms, Wealth management businesses, if they were public currency, they would be a hybrid between growth and yield. There's very few things in financial services that have those characteristics that anybody can get near with their capital. And yet here you and I are talking today about how we can partner with and help, to use your word, uh, firms like these uh, go to the next level. It's, it's really unreal. It's great. Great stuff. Yeah, it's a great position to be in. And uh and look, what you guys are doing at Merchant, which, you know, a number of your competitors across the country, they're infusing more capital into this business so that, you know, one of the biggest outputs of that is holistic wealth. Yep. And I wanted to ask you about some of the trends you see in the business. And, you know, you just mentioned one, I think this rise of holistic wealth management and being that one-stop shop to the investor out there to be able to provide help across insurance and financial planning, estate planning, tax planning, what have you. Yeah. Um, what else do you see though right now? What, do you, what are some of the bigger trends you see in the marketplace that um, your, your clients are either gonna participate in, sit on the sidelines or, or tremendously benefit from? Yeah, look, there's B2B trends and there's B2C trends. Um, we just, we just, as you said, spoke a little bit about the broad scope of what adding value could or should be defined as. I, I like to think of it as really two to three things, and then it could kind of get deeper and more granular from there. But one is growth, both organic and inorganic. Look, everybody has to focus on intelligent growth one way or another. Um, the other is the, um, the insurance that these companies uh, are going to, you know, be durable. Uh, and what that really means is also uh, succession right? Ensuring that the businesses can last multiple generations. I think that's a key theme. And by the way, it's not just a, a good thing on a B2B basis, but clients uh, need to know and deserve to know that their advisors are thinking of that, that kind of action in their business. And that's, by the way, why someone like you is essential to the industry, right? You're helping these people think through uh, that planning. A lot of advisors do great planning for the clients. They don't do very good planning for themselves. And that has to continue to change. And though there lies a, lot, a huge opportunity to help people. Uh, and then the last uh, last big trend, at least that you know, is centered to everybody these days, is capital in all sorts of forms, in all different shapes, and all different sizes, in all different terms as far as duration is concerned. The amount of capital coming into the space is a trend that is just really in the beginning. And, and you know, look, you can think back to firms like Dynasty and Hightower and 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 folks who really were at the forefront, and and in some cases still are at the forefront of this movement. And you look at who has come after them, and it it is it has gone far and wide. I mean, there are, there are, I won't use names, but there are, there are outfits today uh, that probably 10 years ago 
uh, wouldn't take a lunch with a financial advisor. And now they want to pitch that advisor to take capital uh, from them because they finally realize how much true value is embedded in the relationship between the advisor and the client. And that maturation in the market is really, really interesting. I think that's the word. Interesting to watch. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's March Madness time, so I got to throw out a basketball analogy, of course. But we're, we are in the first quarter of this game. We're not here anywhere near crunch time in the fourth quarter because of the capital. That's one big one. But also because of the demographics of our industry. I mean, a lot of that capital is coming in, particularly to younger firms. I mean, private advisor group, I know them well. They're a former client of mine, full of youth, and they're adding more youth and more talent to that organization. They realize that down the road, the advisors that are 70 and 80 out there who have run really good businesses but are ready for retirement, that they, you know, that that business, those assets need to pass on to the next generation. And so this is smart capital. Uh, it's seen these demographics. It's seen the opportunity. It's seen recurring revenue uh, and, and the float towards that from non-recurring. So all those stars are aligned, and that's why I think we are in that first quarter of this basketball game. I think you're 100% right. And it's also an indication to people that first mover advantage is one thing, last mover advantage is another, and they're both equally as good in different situations, right? So advisors, because I'm not just saying it's because it's you, but advisors today have the benefit of a lot of smart people that have run a lot of big companies in the past now bring that intelligence into the independent lane to the benefit of everybody. And so we would encourage, even though Merchant is in the business of partnering with advisors, we would encourage people to slow down and get advice. You know, whether it's, the, whether it's them calling you or, or, or someone else, they should call people that know how to value businesses, know how to optimize businesses, and know how to treat businesses like businesses. A lot of people have looked at wealth management practices as just individuals with P&Ls. And as you look at this landscape and its evolution, you start to realize, to your point, whether we're in the first quarter or the second inning, there's a lot more to be played of this game. And when you look out over five, seven, 10 years, 20 years, we're talking about, you know, potentially generations that will see the evolution of the independent wealth management movement. And that applies not just to the advisors. It applies to the clients. If you think back well before certainly my time, maybe before yours too, you know, and go back 50, 60, 70, 80, I don't know, you pick in the past to the days of the single family office. Those family offices have wanted to and have been able to be covered as institutions for decades as independently covered clients of the street. And the movement we're seeing today that is just gaining more and more momentum by the minute is both for the advisor and the client. And so if the advisors don't make the move, the clients will help them make the move. And that's why everybody, bulge bracket firms included, um, are paying attention and figuring out how to get their, uh, their hat in the mix. I mean, not, not, to, not to steal more airtime here, but just look at a firm that many people historically have been confused by, especially with the press and Wells Fargo. I mean, I got a ton of respect for John Peluso. He's a dear friend. Uh, he had vision clearly when he built Finet. He's now, the, he's now sitting atop of first clearing. You know, our friend John Pyers is at the helm now with, with Barry Summers. I mean, great operators over there these days. And they're going to make a real push into this space. And kudos to them for being at the forefront of that thinking. And look at LPL and Raymond James and, and other businesses that are really coming onto the scene. 
And what it does is it creates, and I'm sorry I'm going this, you didn't ask, but it creates a challenging environment. It'll be an interesting uh, jump ball. Whereas 10 years ago, it was Fidelity and Schwab. But you know, you have a lot of new entrants in a lot of different ways to this space, and it's making for a, a fun go. I agree. There's, there's, and these entrants are, you know, using pri uh, public relation firms and other marketing tactics to distinguish themselves from what they used to be. And I, by the way, I love it when a current podcast guest re refers to a former podcast guest of mine in John Tires. Oh, did I just uh, do that? Hey, John, yeah. how you doing? Yeah, he was my last guest. So, <laughs> uh, and, and he, All if right. he were on this call, would wholeheartedly agree with you. But, you know, let's talk about coming, you know, you just mentioned something that's very interesting to me is these firms that were pegged as a certain type of firm in the past, whether it was a wirehouse or an insurance company or what have you. And all of them are gravitating, as you mentioned, towards wealth yep. where and using the strengths that they've had in the past, adding new people, new capabilities to, to put themselves in another category. But, you know, the whole world, including the media, people in the industry like to put everybody in boxes. And, you know, we've talked before about merchant and I feel like merchant has been put into a box and that box is the private equity firm that is looking to, you know, put some money towards a firm and in three or four years, five years, flip it and, and turn a profit. I know absolutely you guys aren't that, but, you know, give, give my audience here an opportunity to hear from you exactly what is Merchant? What, what are you guys trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? I appreciate the question. It's actually funny. Uh, there's a guy I respect named Jeff Benjamin who writes for Investment News. And uh, he had written about three articles and the headline read private equity firm. And I finally called him and I said, Jeff, we're not a private equity firm. And uh, he changed his headlines because I was explained more, to him. Was your point more colorful than that though, Tim? <laughs> <laughs> no, man, look, here's the truth. We're an operating company. We're a private partnership. We're a growth partner firm to these, to these, to these great RIAs, these great wealth management businesses. And at the end of the day, we're a financial services company. It's even hard to paint us into a box of wealth management specific to RIAs, right? Because we really go broad, right? Because there's the essential services companies to this industry. And then there's the companies that rely on those services companies, services companies to deliver great things to their clients. And we, we want to partner with good people that do great things that grow great businesses. But, you know, going back to your question, private equity typically, as we know, it is set up in a fund structure with a specific time frame or duration pegged to the capital. And, you know, the standard timeline we can use, whether it's five to seven or seven to 10, it's typically five to seven, is, is, is a relatively shorter window. And I really firmly believe, as do my partners, that for whatever it's worth, given the nature of wealth management as a people business, that time window doesn't work because it constricts the creativity and the natural evolution of these companies along the path of their growth. And so when we built Merchant, we said, look, permanent's not necessarily even possible. Everything has an end to it, but durable is real. And that's what we are, right? If somebody were to say to me, well, well give, me, give me a better relative basis. I say, okay, well, think of an infrastructure fund. Okay, we're, we're, we're at the least, we're 15 to 20 year money merchant. We can sit here for two decades and help these firms grow, which means you have to be in the trenches with these companies through good times, through bad times, you are bottom line aligned and you're in the business of providing solutions and generating outcomes. That's what we do for a living. And the other thing is, is that the capital, at least through the merchant lens, and it's not to be like, you know, minimized because it's important, but the capital is the commodity, especially for people who are not looking to sell, but are looking for a partner. And that's another point. 
when you speak to advisors or you speak to operators or business owners, I think one of the first questions people should ask if they're sitting in the quote unquote merchant seat or any other capital partner seat is ask the operator or the owner, what does the future look like? And are you looking for an investor or a capital partner or a partner or a little bit of all those things? And the answer tells you a lot. Okay. Right. And then the aha moment starts to kick in. But for Merchant, we're an operating company, and uh, we're learning new things every day, Derek, about what we should and shouldn't evolve into, frankly. You're a capital partner, but you're also, you know, and tell me if I'm wrong here, Tim, but what I've known you guys to be is, is a minority investor in these, um, taking minority stakes in these companies, yep. which, you know, I've, I've talked to other firms out there who, who follow a similar model in terms of a, a minority stake investment, and they're little more than a, I don't know, a banker. Or little more than a you know a silent investment partner. They're not on the boards of these companies. Yep. They really do nothing on an ongoing operating role from an operating role standpoint. You guys yep. are quite different. So, yep. but, but you're doing that with a minority investment. Yeah. Look, I mean, you have to you have to create an alignment of interests uh, so that both sides care, right, Derek? If we if we were taking five percent right. interest, we might not own enough to really whereby we'd make a difference. And if we took a fifty one percent stake, well, then we'd be a controlling party, which by the way might not be the worst thing one day. But then you've effectively not done a bad thing at all, but you've created a different set of uh, incentives, let's just say, uh, for the person that prior to your investment, maybe owned 100% of the firm. And so where we want to be is, as you said, we want to be coming into these partnerships in a minority, non-control, responsible way that allows us to help these businesses achieve growth, whether it be organic or inorganic, that helps these businesses stay operating on an optimal chassis. So I guess you could consider that uh, middle back office, not consulting, but ongoing assessment. Um, and then the rest of it is really just being shoulder to shoulder. And let's face it, when you're shoulder to shoulder with advisors, you also find yourself, you're, you also find yourself often uh, working on behalf of the end client. And that often means understanding the capital markets, the investment landscape, uh, what perhaps uh, advisors should be investing in uh, as it relates to alternative investments. So yeah, look, we're an active partner. Um, and I also think, Derek, a lot of what we do in terms of engaging is driven by the types of people we have on our team and the subject matter expertise of those individuals, right? So just to, just to, to go there for a second, you know, when, when you look at the team, you know, you've got Mark Spilker who ran Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Mark also ran the wealth business there. You have my partner, Scott Prince, who was the co-founder of Eaton Park before also being, you know, a significant partner and, and head of trading uh, at, uh, at a firm called um, uh, Goldman Sachs. <laughs> um, you have Rick D'Amico who runs our credit business. You have Matt Brinker, who a lot of people know, who helped Joe Durant build United Capital. I'll keep going just for a second. You have Dave Morazic, who's our general counsel, who was you know, the one who wrote the S1 uh, to help take Focus public, right? He was the GC at Focus. You have Brian Staff, uh, whose family uh, started PKS, and right. Brian helped run that broker dealer. So the list goes on. We, we have a really good team. We have a great team. And, and when you have people like that who have built their careers around engagement, not just presentation materials, but actually engaging, um, they can't help themselves. And so when we invest in these firms, we're, we're on the phone with them, if not every day, it's at least a few times a week. And that's fun. But the last thing I'll say is it's hard to, 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 to really engage meaningfully, though, if you have too many partnerships. And I think there's such thing as too many. So merchant might slow down a little bit just for a little bit of time and then uh, increase our resources and then, uh, and then jump back into the market. So drill down. If I went to one of your partners right now and say, you know, you're on the phone with merchant every day. What, are, what, would, what would I hear from them? You know, kind of the top two or three things that they say, I, I, I call them because I need this, or they give me good sage advice on this. 
I mean, what are, is it legal? Is it human resources? You know, give me a sense of that. Let, let me give you, there's, there's a bunch, but let me give you a few that are actually real time right now that seem to be just coincidentally coming up in, uh, in more than one unit at a time. So one of the, one of the, 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 the topics of, uh, of the last few weeks has been, hey, hey, merchant, um, we have an, not an issue, but a, but a situation where we want to equitize uh, G2 uh, alongside G1. Um, can you help us come up with a structure that works? We obviously have a, uh, an operating agreement that we need to be amended. We need to think through different, uh, different forms of share class. We need your help to consider whether or not this uh, new share class should be voting or non-voting. We need your help to uh, put a put a value on that uh, that set of securities that wouldn't be cost prohibitive to G2. I mean, I keep going. So let's just put that in the bucket of aligning the interests of G1 and G2 along the lines of succession planning. And look, the battle's won before the first shot's fired. A lot of firms don't do this until it's too late. And what I'm seeing is a lot of our partner firms are proactive with it. They're reaching out to us. And my partner, Dave Morazic, who's great at this, is doing it. Uh, he's rolling up his sleeves and he's doing the work to help these firms optimize their cap tables. So that's that's one example. Second example would be kind of more you know, generic, but it falls into the bucket of what Matt Brinker did for a living for a long time and still does today, which is M&A, uh, inorganic growth, advisor acquisitions, uh, frankly, with or without capital. So it could be mergers or it could be acquisitions, a little bit of both. And so we find that not all of our partnerships, because we've got 49 of them, but a good number of them have, have come quickly to realize that, hey, I can continue to grow by either A, increasing existing wallet share, uh, B, helping my clients sell their companies, which is another thing we get involved with, key client liquidity events. Uh, C, buying other practices uh, and becoming a destination firm. And then D, as a part of C, how do I do it? <laughs> so you want to do it, but should you do it with money off your balance sheet? Should you use your P&L to go buy these businesses or acquire these firms? Should you get levered? If you're going to get levered, what's the form of credit you should take on? Is it bank capital? Is it private credit? How do you make sure your, your, your business is event ready and let's just say deal ready? How do you make sure that somebody will lend you money? Right. So getting these businesses yeah. in a position where they're able to do the things they keep hearing about uh, along the lines of inorganic growth is, is something we spend a lot of time on. And I'll stop there because I, I don't want to take up too much of the Well, the, the resources are, I mean, I can't think of anybody out there in this business that is a wealth manager, RA business oh. owner that wouldn't look at that and say, those are unbelievable resources. I'd love to have that be a speed dial away from uh, to, to be able to get access. I mean, but is that all part and parcel to your investment? Are you charging, you know, these clients for services like that? Yeah, it's all part of the package, buddy. You know, I look, I, I, we at Merchant believe that a lot of this stuff just comes with, with the territory, right? You, 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 otherwise, again, you're, you're not a bad thing. It's different strokes for different folks. Otherwise, you're just a financial investor. I don't say just in a bad way. But yeah, we don't, we don't have platform fees or charge a cost plus uh, structure uh, to any of our partner firms or frankly, to anybody in the market. So yeah, that's amazing. And you guys have, you guys have invested in kind of tangential businesses that uh, support this, this wealth management space as well. Um, I think I saw one that you did recently. Is it True Investments or something along those lines? Um, is that the name of the firm? Yeah, there's a firm called True Investments run by a good friend of mine, Mike Williams out of Sarasota. And Mike uh, is a wealth management operator. Actually, he, he's a professional investor too, which makes him unique. Uh, actually, one of the guys who used to run the firm, you might remember the name Tocqueville back in the day, but mm -hmm. any of that. Uh, Mike, uh, Mike pioneered something pretty cool. I think it's really cool. It's called Demogronomics. And uh, that's his way to partner with uh, CPAs across the country, but to also 
um, more broadly, bring behavioral finance into the marketplace, yeah. which is something that, you know, is, is really, really important, especially with what's going on today. Another partner firm, just to digress for a second, that does the same sort of thing in a different way is my friend, uh, John Blau from Fusion Family Wealth out in Long Island. And I've known John for, and his wife, Amy, for a long time. They're great people. He also has a behavioral tilt. And it, and it speaks to the fact that there is clearly an increasing trend as it relates to behavioral finance that, uh, that is pretty interesting. And, and are these services made available to your other partner firms or are you actively involved in bringing these together? Yeah, active is all relative, right? And um, truly, right? So, so what, I, what, I, what I mean when I say that is we're not looking to distribute stuff from A to B, but we will absolutely uh, make, make accessible and educate our partners that, hey, this firm is really good at this. And by the way, it could be insurance. Like Apollon, for example, is a business that we're invested in, that we're partnered with. We've watched Mike Goldberg grow this company, and it's really un un unbelievable to watch him do it with the team. But he's one of the best that we've seen in the insurance space. And he can help a lot of our partners who don't do that, right? Really help their underlying clients through a, through a joint venture. We don't get in the middle of that. We don't take agency fees, but we absolutely, it's our duty to connect the dots. And so the short answer to your question is yes. Um, we try to connect these operators as often as possible. Let's get into a deal. And you've done so many. Um, you got a lot of experience and so, a lot of great ones. Some probably you wish you had, uh, hadn't got on your first phone call with. But uh, you know, <laughs> where, where's the, the kind of that aha moment um, in the deal process where you know that merchant is just going to be successful in, in closing this deal and this partnership? It's, it's when the person on the other end of the phone says that they're friends with Derek Bruton, and I know it's going to go well. <laughs> okay. I'm not going to charge you for this podcast. Right. Oh, you might, it might edit that part out. No, no, no. Let me be serious. And even though that was a serious response. Um, no, the aha moment, it really happens, Derek, and you know me outside of work. It happens when you start talking about life. And I like to go there with a lot of people that we're going to partner with. I want to know who you, who you are beyond the boardroom. I want to know how, you know, how, how you talk to the waiter, how you talk to the landscaper, what matters, what makes you move every day, what your hobbies are. Right. Um, you know, non-judgmentally, what kind of music listen to, whether it's heavy metal, hip hop or, or jazz. I just, you know, these kind of non-financial discussions, they matter. And for merchant, that matters. And so we know that when we're having a natural dialogue, when everything isn't focus solely on enterprise value or valuation. And when, when everything is not about the numbers, we, we know we're in the right position with the right kind of person. Okay, this, look, look, there's four things that matter if I were to unpack it and then oversimplify it when we're looking at a potential deal, as you said. One is the person. If there's four pieces to the equation, that one weighs 75%, okay? If we can't get past that point, then there's no reason to have the discussion of what fair might be, might be as it relates to enterprise value. But that is point two. So the aha moment could also happen when you get through point one and then point two rears its head and you say, you know what, I think I can get to a fair entry point with this person. They're being reasonable. Then point three is, can we actually help the firm? Can we help the firm grow? Can we add value? Can we cause and effect change? And then point four, what else can we do that we haven't yet figured out? Which really means, can you grow a business with this uh, group of people? And um, that's kind of how we look at things, man. I mean, the, the valuation is pretty simple. Um, it's the cultural stuff. It's the art, not the science that generally generates the aha moment. Yeah, I got to imagine most of these people want to go straight to the science and conversations because they've been trained that way. The media trains them that way. We all do. We all talk about multiples. We all talk about EBITDA and, and you know, pro forma EBITDA. 
And so the science is just at the forefront of everything and breaking through that yep. and asking questions about whether you're a jazz lover or not has got to be surprising to a lot of these folks sometimes. It's a different approach. I get out, you got to get on the phone with people or in person. You got to, it's funny, you got to stop people sometimes. You know, when you sit down with somebody in a meeting and they jump right into it and you go, hold on a second, can I ask you a question? They go, either they say yes or no, they either talk through you or not. <laughs> or they say, yeah, sure. And you go, how are you doing today? What, what have you been up to? What are your plans for the summer? <laughs> Tell me about who you are. Are you married? Do you have kids? You know, wh what do you do for fun? Everything then gets broken down at that point, right? The, the facades disappear. The posturing goes away. The real person comes out. You can see if you could work with somebody or not. And that's when the aha moment naturally presents itself. And that's where real decisions are made, man. You know, the other thing I'll do sometimes yeah. we do is somebody will say, so, so go ahead, pitch me. <laughs> and I'll say, no, no, you go. <laughs> or what do you think my company's worth? And you say, well, I think it's worth two times. Two times what? Bottom line. They go, what? And you're just kidding, obviously. But you got you to gotta understand the person first. Well, there's two parts to all these, all these deals, I feel. There's the business win. It's what the seller gets by selling their business. But then there's the personal win. That's right. And, and, you know, deals are often attempted to, to, to reach closure without identifying that personal win. And I just think that's uh, that's grounds for problems in the future, or maybe not even the future by the time you get to deal close. So understanding that personal win and and, you know, how this person is going to walk away and be happy that, you know, two months, two years, 20 years later that they did it. If you can get to that, you're, you're doing more than most people out there. I think you're right, Derek, but you said something that made me think differently before, not about what I just said, but in general, which is approach. And I have to say, though, for some people, and in all fairness to these folks, if they wake up tomorrow, regardless of age, and they say, you know what, I think I've peaked in growth, it's time for me to sell, then maybe those transactions are very much less about the DNA and the people and more about the capital. Yeah. And in those cases, you can't blame the acquirer or the seller for jumping right to the science. So I almost want to step back part of my statement and say, look, for merchant, the people really do matter all the time. They do. For other investors who are just investors, which they do fabulous things, and a lot of them are some of the world's probably best private equity firms, that DNA approach, that cultural approach, it naturally, as you'd expect, just it just matters less. I agree. Well, look, Tim, this has been awesome. I, I know that you're extremely busy. We've already defined that at the outset of this call. You're, you and I are both running crazy, but I do have one last question for you. And Shoot. That's what I ask most of my guests. What do you enjoy most about this, about what you're doing today in this business? Yeah, man, I, I feel good. I feel proud. Honestly, it's because I get to spend time with people that I want to spend time with. I get to help people. Merchant gets to help people. More important than me, Merchant gets to help people solve problems. And, and pursue really their vision. I mean, there's, there's very few businesses I can think of, Derek, especially in financial services. I mean, look, doctors save lives, teachers teach kids and adults, you know, on what they should do with their lives. Those are special people in the world. Finance, usually you're not in a position to put your arm around somebody and go, hey, man, hey, hey, this was great. Uh, that's what I love about uh, this industry. It's what I love about merchant. We're in the business of people, but we get to enjoy the success of financial services at the same time. And I feel very lucky to do that. You're putting smiles on people's faces, Tim, and uh, and that's so great to see. Well, give my best to the uh, the team at Merchant. All the best to you and your family, and thanks Thank again you, for doing Thank this, Tim. Really course. appreciate it. Thank you, buddy. It's great to see you. And thank you for listening to my show today. 
You can subscribe to Can You Hold My Attention podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as through our LinkedIn page with the same name. Have a great day and stay safe.